This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to thank you for your word. And we thank you for the book of Romans. And we pray that today you will help us to understand how we are to live lives in response to your mercy. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, in 1997, in November, there was a cargo vessel called the Green Lily, which was caught off a storm in the Shetland Islands in the United Kingdom. So she lost power, she was grounded on the rocks, and she was caught in this massive storm. The storm was so terrible that when the lifeboats or the Coast Guard tried to come to the rescue, they couldn't board the boat. But at that time, it just so happens that there was a Coast Guard uh, helicopter which was in the area, and they tried to come to rescue the 10 sailors which were aboard the boat. There was a man there called Bill Deacon, who was a veteran of 27 years as a lifeguard, coast guard saver. And he volunteered in terrible conditions to go onto the deck. Oh, no, you can't show them yet. Because you tell them what happened. Okay, go back, go back, go back. So he decided to volunteer in terrible conditions to go onto the deck of the boat in order to save the 10 seamen who were there. So he went onto the deck. And one by one, he attached the line onto each of the sailors and they were winched up to the helicopter. And all this time, he stayed on the deck of the boat. So one person went up, two person went up, three people went up. And all together, ten people were saved. But just as that last person was saved, there was a huge wave and this guy, Bill Deacon, was washed off the boat and he died. And his body was recovered 20 hours later. Okay, then you can show the, the last slide, right? Now I want you to imagine if you were one of the 10 people who were on that boat that day and you were facing certain death in that storm. All of a sudden you hear the helicopter coming a distance and unbelievably in this terrible condition you see this man coming aboard the deck and staying on the deck and winching you guys up one by one and risking himself and in the end you see him Uh, get washed off the deck, and you are saved in the helicopter. Imagine if you're home recuperating, and a few weeks later, you hear a knock on the door, right? And you go to the door, and who would it be but someone looking for donations for the Coast Guard service? What would you do? What would be the right thing for you to do to respond to what had just happened to you? Well, the right thing to do would be obviously to take out your wallet and to give some money, to get involved, to in some way, to, to, to give your thanks for the Coast Guard and for this man who had saved you. Now, today we are looking at a very similar situation, but something of much greater gravity and of a lot more magnitude. Because over the last few weeks, we've been looking at from chapter 1 to chapter 12, of the Bible, where it's told us that actually we are all in a great sea of judgment. And actually we all face certain death and condemnation by God. But nothing that we have done has resulted in anything that can save us. But God in His sovereignty, in His grace, in His kindness, mercy, has sent Jesus Christ to die for us 
And because he has died for us, he has also chosen us to be saved. So chapter 12 asks the question, what then is the right response to what God has done for us? And in verse 12, it tells us, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Well, the Bible tells us, it doesn't just tell us actually, if you see here it says that it urged us. And the word here, urge, is actually not even strong enough. It literally is the word summon. Paul says, I summon you, I call upon you, I order you in view of God's mercy from chapter 1 to 12 in the death of Jesus Christ, in saving us, in choosing us, in picking us, that we must give a right response to God. And the right response is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is the right, true and proper way to respond to God's mercy. Now the first thing that we learn here is that there is a right order in the response to God. You see, it is because God first saves us that we respond next by offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to Him. See, the problem for many people in the world today is they think that we we seek to please God first and then God will save us. But actually, what we've seen in the Bible is that in Christ, God saves us first and as a result, we respond to then please Him by being living sacrifices. See, the idea of trying to please God in order for Him to save us is religion. It is not Christianity, it is religion, a religion where we do things in order for God to try to force God's hand to save us. But as we read this passage, we do not respond to be holy and pleasing to God in order to make God save us, but because we have been saved people. So, as we look at this passage, it tells us that in view of God's mercy first, we must respond rightly by offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Now, what does it mean, a living sacrifice? What a weird way of saying this. Well, the word living sacrifice actually looks back to the Old Testament because the Jews were very familiar with offering sacrifices. And what they would do is they would bring their chickens or their bulls or their goats or their sheep to the temple where the priests would put the animal and sacrifice them on the sacrificial altar. Well, the Bible tells us now that in view of God's mercy, God doesn't want us to bring our chickens and our goats and our sheep and our uh, whatever else, but instead God literally wants us to put ourselves on the sacrificial altar. We are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And this is the sort of worship right, that God wants. It's the only appropriate worship in response to God's salvation of us. Now, when you think of the word worship, what do you think of? Many people have the mistaken idea of worship is what we do when we come to church. We sing songs and we praise God and we pray. That's worship, many people think, right? And I think that for many people, 
when they visit churches, this wrong idea is fostered because of the language that we use. You know, so I'm the worship leader. Or some churches say, let's give a sacrifice of praise. Or some people say, let's give a clap, a clap offering to God. And this gives the wrong idea that somehow the only time we worship God is when we come to church. But the Bible actually says that our worship of God is 24 hours, 7 days a week. This is the appropriate worship of God. You know, imagine if, uh, again, you were a seaman on the green lily and you were recuperating at home and you hear that knock on the door and the guy comes up to you and he's from the lifeguard, the coast guard, and he wants you know, to, to, to ask for a uh, uh, donation. You say, okay, I'll sing for, I'll sing for you. I mean, you think that's really weird, right? That's not the right response to having your life saved. Well, in the same way, if God sent Jesus Christ to die for you, if you are the clay and he's the potter and somehow he's molded you into a vessel for salvation, then the right response is not just to come for an hour on a Sunday to sing praises to God, but to give a living sacrifice to God. That means that God sees that the worship that he desires is all of life. How I use the internet, how I watch TV, how I work, how I study, how I relate to people, how I use my money, how I use my possessions. All those things are given to God as a living sacrifice. Even how I go to toilet right, can be used as a living sacrifice to God because you know I keep the the toilet clean, I flush the toilet for the next person. If I'm at home, I lift up the toilet seat so that you know, my wife won't scold me. You know, things like that. All of life must be given over as a living sacrifice of worship to God. See, I like what the, the message, you know, the message is uh, the translation, one of the translations of the Bible. And he says, take your everyday life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Is that statement true of you? Is your sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life placed as an offering before God and an act of worship? Because that is the right response to God's mercy towards us. Well, in verse 2, it tells us a bit more about what is required to respond to God's mercy. In verse 2 it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. There are two commands here, two imperatives. One is a negative and one is a positive. One is defensive and one is offensive. So the defensive negative thing is do not conform to the pattern of this world. But rather, the positive thing is, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what it says here is, do not conform to the pattern of this world, or literally is, do not conform to the pattern of this age. Now we've already seen in chapter 1, if you look up here on this table, uh, how this world or this age is living in rebellion against God. You know, so in chapter 1, we saw that the world was heartless. It was rebelling against God. It was full of arrogance and strife and malice and giving itself over to sexual morality. But here, as we look at chapter 12, we are no longer to conform to this pattern of the age that we live in or the world that we live in, but rather we are to be transformed totally differently. 
Now, as we reflect on this, it's really sad because many times you see Christians and you put them side by side with non-Christians and you, you play the game spot the difference. But you can't see any difference. Right? In the way that we live, in the way that we think, in the dreams that we have, in what we do with our time, in what we do with our money, in terms of our passions, we are conformed totally to the world, to the pattern of this world. If, if you were to think of yourself and put yourself side by side with someone you work with or people that you study beside, can people look at you and say, this person is different than other people? If, if they can't see a difference, then you are conformed to the pattern of this world. But rather, it says there, as people who've received God's mercy, we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, our mind. Now the word here, transform, is literally the word uh, metamorphosis. Okay, so, you know when you have a, it's like a, a caterpillar, which becomes a beautiful butterfly. That is the word that is used. It is a total, complete, and comprehensive, overwhelming transformation. See, sometimes as Christians, we think, okay, after I become a Christian, I'll just change a little bit. You know, we just sort of change bits and pieces. But when a, when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, there is an overwhelming transformation of the very nature of that creature. And that's what this word is saying. When you become a Christian, you are no longer conformed to the pattern of this world, but you are totally transformed into a different being, a different type of person. You're transformed, you're metamorphosized. And that only happens because your mind is renewed. So therefore, our minds, our Christian minds, are not informed by the pattern of this world, but we are informed and changed and revolutionized by a different way of thinking. Now that means, first and foremost, that we need to allow our minds to be renewed by our knowledge of God, our knowledge of God's Word and His will for us. But I think one of the problems that we have is that as Christians, we are not metamorphosized because our brains are not renewed. So for many Christians, and I know many of them, they watch maybe 20 hours of television, and maybe that's conservative, right? Or maybe 20 hours of surfing the net and reading a newspaper. But the only thing that they fill their mind with of, of, of Christian content is, is, is uh, maybe listening to the sermon for 20 minutes and dozing off for 10, right? So the thing is, how can you renew your mind when your mind is actually continually being filled with the things of this world? So I remember reading in the Straits Times uh, a while ago about how they had a study in America where watching too much reality TV is actually really bad for you. So they did a study about how these uh, they, they, they got these uh, girls to watch reality TV and they compared them to these people who didn't. And they found that these girls who watched a lot of reality TV found that it was more uh, acceptable to gossip and slander one another than people who 
didn't watch reality TV. And they also found that when they did a survey that for people who watch a lot of reality TV, physical appearance was of great importance to them. And they also found that they were less likely to be cooperative in their outlook in life and more self-centered in the way that they lived. Because what they watched was shaping their idea of how they should live. So in the same way, if we do not read the Bible, if we do not allow our minds to be renewed by our relationship with God, the mercy that we receive, God's will for us, then we cannot be transformed because you, be, you cannot be transformed by what you don't know. I think also many times for us, we may have our minds renewed, but we seek not to be transformed because we don't want to go against the pattern of this world. And I think that that's where the idea of being a living sacrifice is a very very appropriate one. So I remember someone once said that, you know what the problem with having a living sacrifice is? The problem is the living sacrifice tends to want to crawl off the altar, you see. Because, you know, you put the dead sacrifice there, then they tend to stay in the altar. But, you know, the living sacrifice tends to want to get, get off the altar. And I think that's the same for us. So, you know, we are the living sacrifice. God tells us to, to, to give our lives to, to Him, holy and pleasing, but we want to get off the altar and stop sacrificing ourselves. Because it's hard, it's difficult. Because when we choose not to conform to this world and we are transformed instead, we will face opposition and difficulty because we are different from this world. It's so much easier to flow with the flow of this world than to, than to go against the flow of this world. But that's why it says there that Paul urges and summons and calls upon people to give their lives as a living sacrifice. Now, once we understand uh, verse 1 and 2, then the rest of basically chapter 12, 13 and 14 fall in line with what we've read. Because verse 1 and 2 is like the principle of how we should live. But then verse 3 onwards is about the application to their context. But just because it's an application to their context doesn't mean that it doesn't have relevance to us. But it's got lots of good things to say even to us today, 2,000 years later. So verse uh, 3 to 13, he applies the principle of living sacrifice, transform living, to the relationship within community, the community of Christians. He says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is Giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Now, what seems to be happening here seems to be the situation in the church where, as we can look at this passage, people were wanting 
to have the more prestigious gifts. Everybody seemed to want to have the more highly sought after gift. And that's why he says, right at the very beginning there, that all the gifts that are given, even the gift of apostleship to Paul, was a grace from God. It's not because they were more special, that they worked harder, that intrinsically they were better. But God in His grace gives different gifts to different people in the congregation. And each of these gifts, like the parts of a human body, are meant to serve the greater body. Now, so you think of it, if everybody wants to be the head and nobody wants to be the arms or the legs, it will look like a, a, a real mutation, right? Can you imagine a body with ten heads? And he says that's not the way that God has designed the community of believers. God has given grace to each person and according to the grace that God has given you, you are to serve with that grace. Obviously, some gifts or some graces which are given are seen to be more prestigious. So everybody wants to be a leader. Everybody wants to be a teacher. Everybody wants to prophesy. But he says, look, if 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 God has given you the grace, the gift of being an encourager, someone who comes along, alongside other Christians and prays with them and encourages them and keeps them going, then you should do that. If God has given you a gift of showing mercy to the sick and those who are suffering, and comforting them, then you should be doing that. Because this is the grace that God has given you. But if you notice something as well, there is, through this whole section in verse 3 to 13, the idea of where, as you, God has given you this grace or this gift, you are to use it uh, diligently and apply it seriously. And if you look at this passage, he says that, Everybody, like it says in verse 3, right? For the grace given to me, I say to every one of you. That means that in the church, everybody has a grace that God has given them to serve other people. See, the pattern of the world is the uh, self-service pattern. Right? You know, you, you serve yourself. The pattern of the world is the 20-80 pattern, right? So where, where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. But the pattern of God's renewed people, the transformed people, is 100-100. Where 100% of the people do 100% of the work. So, if we were to reframe it, has every one of you received the Lord's mercy? Yes, right? We have all received the, God, the Lord's mercy. God's mercy. If if all of us here 100% have received God's mercy, then 100% of us must serve. It cannot be that you've received God's mercy and you do not respond by by not serving. Because then you are not being a living sacrifice, you are not living a transformed life, you are living according to the pattern of this world. And that's what this passage is saying. It's saying, look, the very first thing that Paul taught the Roman church was, in view of God's mercy and a transformed life and giving themselves as a living sacrifice, they were to not aspire everyone to the prestigious gifts, but to use the gifts that they were given and everyone to be serving. In verse 9, he goes on to give a, a range of um, instructions. 
But he seems to focus a lot on this theme of love. So in verse 9 he says, Love must be sincere. Uh, Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now here, it seems as if Paul needs to come back to the the importance of love because we are we are able to serve, but if you don't have love, then it's not really the service that God wants. You know, it's very easy, right? So it's like, okay, I have to serve as a welcomer or a usher today because you know, uh, because June put my name down on the roster, so I just have to turn out and I serve in a very grudging or very grumpy way. But I don't really love people. I don't really want to do this. There's no sincere love in my heart. But look at the adjectives that that the Bible uses. You have to have sincere love in verse 9. In verse 10, be devoted to one another in love. You have to have sincere love and devoted love to one another. But is that the characteristic that we have here as a community of people who receive God's mercy? So I know that um, in our congregation, there have been people who go overseas uh, to study, and they come back and tell me about, sometimes they visit churches all over the world. And somebody was just telling me the last holidays that they came back, that they said, oh, you know, they went to this church in some country, that won't be named, and they said, you know, it was a culture shock because the people in church kept asking them, how are you? Right? And then the person will actually take it seriously that the person really wants to know how they are, so they'll tell them about their week and everything else. But the, but the people at church will always cut them off because actually what they were just saying was hello. They weren't really saying how are you at all. And I remember someone once said that, you know, the world is sometimes like people open up their arms to welcome you, but they never close their arms around you to welcome you, right? It's like they're just opening it up, but they never put their arms around you to welcome you. And he said, well, that's a problem because many churches are like that. There is no sincerity of love. There's no devotion of love. There is the, the pretense of love and uh, I guess the the surface image of love where you know we're asking ourselves, how are you? And we have our uh, welcoming time. But do we really love one another sincerely and are motivated uh, with a sincere love and devotion and love? In verse 14 onwards, um, obviously we're not going to be able to cover everything and hopefully if you're in the Bible study groups, which I hope you are in, then you'll be able to cover the rest of the points in detail. But I'm not going to be covering it today, right now. But in the last section from verse 14 to 21, the uh, what's in view here is not so much relationships between Christians to Christians, but what seems to be in view here seems to be more relationships between Christians and the outside world. Okay, so from verse 14 to 21, the thing that seems to be focused upon is that as Christians, we are to live in peace and harmony as far as possible with the outside world. Right, so it says in verse uh, 16, live in harmony with one another. Right, do not be proud. Be willing to be associated with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Uh, in verse 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace 
with everyone. So, if we go back to chapter 1, you need the table again, you'll see that the world is not peace-loving. Uh, the world is not harmonious living. It's arrogant and conceited. It's very prickly and thin-skinned. So, it takes offense very quickly. And it's very quick to anger and to take offense. Uh, you just have to go to, or maybe I come from the wrong family, but you only have to go to any family, big family dinner, right? And you, you see the petty fights and quarrels that happen continually. Or you go to any forum section on the internet. Or, you know, you go to any big office setting or, you know, or even classroom setting. There are people who are always argumentative and conflict driven. But as Christians, we are not to be like that. We are supposed to be peace loving. We are to, as much as possible, live in harmony with this world. But the theme that overflows from this section, and I think the hardest thing for us, is the command not to take revenge. Right? Verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless, do not curse. Verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Do not take revenge in verse 19, my friends. This is hard. I'm sure when we did the responsive reading, when Jesus said as well, you know, don't just love those who love you back, but to love your enemies. Uh, I'm sure if you really thought through it, that would be very difficult. Now, how is that possible? Because it's very counter-cultural. It's very counter the pattern of this world. How do you stop yourself from taking revenge and getting back at people. Right? So people gossip about you, so you want to gossip back about them. People slander you, so you want to slander them back. What holds you back from doing that? It's the power of a renewed mind. It's the power of a renewed mind which knows God. Because without God, I think we wouldn't have any reason not to take revenge because nobody's going to take revenge for me. Or no one's going to stand up for me in justice. But the Bible says very clearly, in verse 19, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if you know God in a renewed mind, you will know that God is a judging God. We have been saved from God's judgment and His wrath. But if people seek to, to be rebellious and follow the pattern of this world and do bad things, then God will judge people. And the Bible says, leave God's judgment to God. And you do what is right before God as a living sacrifice. Now, verse 20 is a very difficult passage to understand. Some people want to see it as a positive thing. Right? So, you know, if you do good to your enemy, you, you feed your enemy, you give him something to drink, then, then it will be like heaping burning coals on their head. So, you know, it will make them feel bad about themselves and therefore they will come to salvation. Uh, I don't take that view. I see... Verse 20 is a negative image. 
where the, the heaping of burning coals is actually a picture of, of judgment. Uh, a few weeks ago, actually, I, I went to a barbecue. And I, I know some of you are actually here who was at the barbecue with me. And I said, you know, when we were doing the barbecue, someone was saying, hey, you know, if you put those burning coals on your head, it would be really, really painful. Because, you know, you can't even put your hands near the where the, 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 the meat is cooking, right? Could you imagine putting those burning coals over your head? Surely it can't be a positive illustration, right, of putting burning coals on your head. It's a negative illustration. And I think that within the context of verse 19 and 20, that is what it's saying. It's like if you do good and people still persecute you, people are still bad to you, people are still rude to you, then God will punish punish them and it will be like putting burning coals on their head. Now this is not saying that God cannot or will not save these people, but if they turn away from what they are doing, God will and can save them. But what this verse is saying, verse 20, is that leave judgment to God. Because judgment is God's domain. Judgment is God's prerogative. And He will be able to give you justice. So as we look at this passage, it's all about order, right? God first saves us, gives us mercy. So we must, we are urged, we are summoned to live a life of as a living sacrifice, 24 hours, 7 days a week, holy and pleasing before God. This is our act of worship. And what it means is we must be transformed and not conformed to the world. And specifically, as we look here, it comes in the area of serving one another. All of us serving one another. It comes in the area of loving one another. It comes in the area of living in harmony with the outside world and not taking revenge. In conclusion, I met a missionary uh, last week. But the very sad thing was, this missionary is no longer a Christian. So I had a conversation with him, and I said, you know, what happened to you? Why are you not a Christian anymore? And his answer to me was that it was because so many Christians had let him down in life. There had been a scandal in the mission field, in his home sending church, there was ungodliness, there was problems, there was division, there was a lack of love. Um, even today, uh, he was just telling me, he's now doing a business, right? Uh, he gave a discount to a Christian client, and this Christian client is now trying to cheat him. And he's saying, you know, let's look at Christians. See, look at these Christians. I mean, how... You know, you ask me why I'm not Christian. Well, this is the reason why I'm not a Christian. So anyway, I, I tried to uh, try to talk and try to convince him. I said, oh yeah, you know, it's really sad. But, 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 it doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ still died and rose again for you. But his answer to me was, no, it doesn't. But it makes you doubt it. You see, it's so sad because there were so many people who who, like this missionary had come across, say that they are Christians, say that they believe in Jesus, say that they have received God's mercy, but they don't respond to God's mercy in living a way that it is pleasing to God, holy and as a living sacrifice. They are not transformed at all. In fact, they are conformed totally to the pattern of this world. They are still unloving. They are still... Uh, backbiting, they're still divisive, they are still unholy, they are still you know, cheating. 
But the Bible tells us so clearly here, we are urged and summoned that because God has already saved us, God has given us His mercy, then the only true and right response must be to give our lives to Him, to be transformed, to be metamorphosized completely, to be totally different from the pattern of this world. So as we reflect on this pattern, we reflect on the demand of being a living sacrifice, it's good to look hard at ourselves and to ask ourselves, are there ways in which in my life I'm conforming to the pattern of this world instead of being transformed? If this missionary were to look at me today, if God looks at me today, which areas would he see very clearly that I'm not living as a living sacrifice? Because if God has sent Jesus to die for me, if God has chosen me, then I have, I have to live a transformed life as a living sacrifice before God. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear living, dear loving Heavenly Father, we pray be, before you today with great humility, with great thankfulness for you first saved us in Jesus Christ. You first chose us to receive grace and mercy and kindness. And now the only right and true and proper response is to come to you giving our whole life as a living sacrifice. Dear Father, may we all put our bodies on your sacrificial altar and to be willing to be transformed by renewed mind. Dear Father, help us to have honest insight into our hearts to see the areas where we are still like the world full of malice, conceit, full of division and conflict, full of pride and ego, full of self-serving and ambition. But rather help us to see, dear Father, that we must be transformed to be loving one another sincerely and devotedly. That we should seek to serve with the gifts and the grace that you've given us that our lives must be transformed in a way that reflect our identity as your people. That as we move and live and walk in the outside world, that when people see us, they see us as different from the pattern of this world. That we do not take revenge or get back at people. That we are peaceful people, harmonious living people. And dear Father, that we know with a renewed mind that indeed, all the wrongs which we may encounter, all the the pain and the persecution that we may uh, come across, that you, in the last day, will, uh, with full certainty, uh, with your justice, take care of all these things. And that we may rest upon your promise and your person. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.